Hey guys, before we get going, I want to just have you guys give a big clap for uh, the people that are back in the kitchen, the Shadors and the Chamblesses, for fixing food for you guys this morning. If you haven't noticed, we do like a rotation now of, uh, of some people that come through since the, um, uh, since the Ruse have stepped out of that role. So we appreciate that. Also want to reinforce uh, December 17th, which is a Sunday. It's two weeks from today. Um, we're going to have about 50 families in here. They're going to be um, getting some gifts that you guys are doing for the gift drive. So I want to have you guys uh, um, help serve at that gift drive lunch. So we need about 15 to 20 of you to sign up at your table this morning. Um, saying that you'll help serve um, on the 17th for the gift drive lunch. Another way for us to put faces in front of these people that we're serving um, on December 17th. And then also, uh, today we are in 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 7 in a moment. 1 Peter chapter 4, go ahead and turn there. Uh, But next Sunday, we're going to have a special guest speaker up here. We're going to have uh, Mr. Raymond Jimenez will be speaking to us next Sunday. He'll kind of close out the last part of this series. Um, I'll be doing the main service up there, and so I'm going to have him do that. So I actually wish I could sit in here and hear him, listen to him uh, speak, but um, I won't be able to do that. So turn to First Peter chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 7 in a minute. Uh, now, how many of you guys, I did hear the good news that uh, Temple won on Friday, so that's good. And I heard it was like a last-minute, last-second kind of a win, um, which ties in perfectly to what I was going to talk about because uh, you guys have been to football games before where, um, like, one team – I know this is a high-scoring game I heard, but some, some, some games you watch, there might be, um, you know, 55 minutes of just no offense, right? And then, uh, and then what happens in the last couple of minutes is they just kind of pick it up. And, and something happens where it's just it's kind of magical at the end of a game. Uh, they call it the two-minute drill. Uh, so you guys know um, this is sad but true, but you know who my team is um, in the NFL. They're not doing too well. And, uh, um, but about three weeks ago, they were like um, injury-riddled team, and, and they're, they're playing against the Saints. And somehow the Redskins were miraculously beating the Saints by like 15 points. The score was 31 to 16, and the Saints had not done much offensively like they normally do in this game. And so for 54 minutes, the Redskins had held them to only 16 points. And then, of course, at minute, like with like six minutes to play, um, Drew Brees just took over, and he just magically leads his team back. They score 15 quick points, then they get the two-point conversion, then they get the overtime, and then they get the ball, and they score and it's just game over, um, one of those magical, nightmarish losses, right? And they scored more points in just a few minutes than in 54 minutes. And the reason why is they had a sense of urgency. And you've seen this play out in many games you've watched, I'm sure, um, where you're watching a team and you're like, they, they didn't do anything the whole game. How they just get it in gear? And they got the two-minute drill, and all of a sudden they've won the game. And here's why I think teams can pull it off, because there's this sense of urgency about um, what they're doing, and it, and it makes you ask the question, why don't teams play like that all the time, right? Like, why don't they just always play the two-minute drill and, uh, and always play the game that way? They play different when they know the time is running out. 
And uh, this is kind of what Peter is addressing in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, because we can ask the same question about ourselves. How would you be living if you only had a short time left, or if you knew time was running out, how would you live differently? I think most of us would live a little bit differently if we knew there was some time running out on the clock. And we, we'd live with a, a bigger sense of urgency if we knew that was the case. So this is the issue addressed in this passage. Look at First Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. For the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So in verse 7, he talks about the end of all things being at hand. And I know whenever we talk about the end times or the end, um, I think Christians can get a bad rap because there are those people that take out billboards on I-35 that say things like, they give a date and they'll say, you know, the end is upon us and they'll give some date in the future. And it's those kinds of people that can make regular Christians look crazy and that, that's not what Peter's doing here. Peter's not trying to say there's some date in, that he knows in the future where, where Jesus is coming back. He's not even saying it's going to happen like next week or next month or next year. He's simply saying because, um, because Christ has ascended that, yes, it's, it's imminent. At any moment, Christ could return. And so we, have to, we need to live in, such, in this way, live as if he could return at any moment. He's not making some prediction when he says this. Um, you might say it like this. Uh, this is a quote by Juan Sanchez. He says, living with the end in view is not a call to radical Christianity, but to normal Christianity. I think if you're a Christian that walks around talking about the end or the end times all the time, um, you're going to get some looks. People look at you funny. But as a Christian, if we're going to live in reality, we have to know Jesus is coming back at some point. And so it's not crazy to think about that or talk about that or live in light of that. That's just normal Christianity. That's just normal Christian stuff. That's not being crazy. I mean, taking out a billboard with a date is crazy. But just living in light of the end is not a a crazy idea. So Peter says, because the end is near... He says, be self-controlled and be sober-minded. I think for a lot of us, when we know the end of something is near, we tend to lose focus. And Peter is saying, gain focus. Be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. So instead of you doing the opposite of what most do, which is, hey, the end's coming. Let's, Let's party. Let's go crazy. And... And have as much fun as we can. Peter's saying, no, do the opposite. You gain focus when you know the end is near. So he uses this word sober-minded. And of course, when we say the word sober, we think of what? We think of alcohol or drugs or something like that. But Peter is not referring to 
just not partying or not doing those kinds of things. He's talking about um, you living in such a way where your mind is clear. We know that if, if someone is drunk, if they're high on something, their mind's not clear. It's not hard to tell that. And this is why um, they'll, people will ask them questions. They'll say, can you touch your nose? Can you walk this line? Can you do some basic human things um, to make sure you're, you're, not, you're not high on something, to make sure you're sober? And if they can't do those things, then we know that they're, they're not thinking clearly, they're not seeing clearly. But I think many of us, we might not be on some kind of a substance, but, um, but we might not be living sober-minded because we're not seeing things clearly. We're not seeing things clearly the way that God wants us to. So he's not referring to like just not being drunk. He's referring to being clear-minded um, in a spiritual sense. And, uh, and I think what can happen is whenever you know the end is near, you try to deaden yourselves to that reality. I think especially at, at, in our youth, we tend to want to deaden ourselves to the reality of the end being near or the fact that Jesus is going to return for his church. Instead of deadening yourself to this reality, Peter is um, saying you need to wake up and be clear-minded and sober-minded and awake to this reality that is true. And I want you to see in this text, uh, there's a relationship between prayer and being sober-minded. Look at the connection here. Look at the text again in verse 7. He says, Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So what's he saying when he says that? I think he's saying just very simply that prayer keeps us sober-minded. Prayer is what helps do that, what helps accomplish that. I notice when I, when I don't pray, I don't think straight. When I go days or a while without praying, like really focused prayer with God, I don't think straight. I've told you before that much like many of you, I struggle with like anxiety and worry sometimes, and, and, and I don't think straight. Whenever I don't spend time with God in prayer, that's when I get caught up in the vortex of anxiety and worry, and I feel like I can't get out of it. Then I realize I need to go and just, I need to pray, I need to spend time with God in prayer and spend time with His Word, and it's a reminder of this dependence upon Him. When I pray and I read, I find how much easier it is for me to see things clearly and to be sober-minded. You might say it like this, our prayer life determines how sober-minded we are, just very simply. Our prayer life will determine how sober-minded we are. You will not be sober-minded by just trying harder. It's a dependence issue. If you just think, yeah, I got I to gotta fix this, I got I to gotta see things clearer. No, it's, if it's not connected to prayer, it's not going to happen. It's a dependence on Jesus issue for us. And I want you to look at this, um, this next section here in verses uh, 8 and 9. Peter gives us a, a glimpse of what it means to live with this end in view. In verses 8 and 9, he says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So one way that we live with a sense of urgency 
is by loving one another earnestly. So going back to this, this team analogy, when a team has a sense of urgency at the end of a game, they're just trying to win the game, you can see among certain teammates, they become less selfish, they become more sacrificial, they become more connected as a team. There is each looking out for the other. The guy who normally is mad that he wasn't throwing the ball might be a little bit less angry because he's just glad they won the game. When, when you see, when the end's coming, it, it's like it has this way of bringing people together and saying, no, let's accomplish this mission and let's, let's just win the game. We don't care who gets the credit. We don't care who gets the glory. And so Peter's trying to get them to have this sense of urgency as he's encouraging these people um, in their faith. So the same should happen in the church. We should live under this idea that because the end is coming, the end is near, there should be this sense of unity and camaraderie and community and we're teammates, we are family, we're in this together. And, but it should be fueled by this reality that we are um, living in this sense of urgency because Jesus could return at any moment. So I don't want him to return and catch me being selfish and catch me thinking about myself and my own glory and my own satisfaction. So it should happen that way in the church as well. So look what it says about loving one another. It says, why does loving one another, what does it lead to? I think we need to see a lot more forgiveness in the church. If I surveyed the room, I think you would admit, you're like, yeah, there's lots of sin in the church. In fact, this, this passage says, love covers a multitude of sins. And I want you to think about someone who's wronged you and someone that you've kind of held a grudge against. And I could be wrong, but I would bet that maybe it was just one thing. Maybe they just did one thing to you, and you've kind of held this against them, and you've, you've sort of cut off the friendship. And this passage says, love covers a multitude of sins. So not just one sin, but many sins. A multitude of sins. So there should be a lot more forgiveness. We know there's a lot of sin in the church, but there should be a lot of forgiveness in the church. The church needs to be a place that's known for forgiveness. If we're going to be a people who are characterized by the gospel and we are pointing people to this Jesus who is a forgiving God, then how can we sit here and say, like, but I'm not going to be a vessel of that forgiveness. I'm not going to be one who gives the forgiveness that I demand from God myself. So the church needs to be this place where there's a lot of forgiveness going on in the church. There is going to be a lot of sin, but that means there should also be a lot of forgiveness happening in the body of Christ. When Peter says love covers a multitude of sins, what he means is that when you love someone and you care for someone, you're already inclined toward to forgive them. You're already bent towards forgiveness. I think I said this in the main service a while back, but I talked about how when I wrong my wife, which does happen sometimes, 
Not a lot, but yeah, sometimes. Her love for me inclines her to forgive. So if I, if I come to her like in sackcloth and ashes and I'm repentant, right? And, and I confess and say how wrong I was. Well, her love for me is going to incline her to forgive me. And the same is true with my own kids. When my kids wrong me, which happens a lot, um, I'm inclined to forgive them because I love them. There should be, like, you know when you were a kid and you would go to the doctor, um, I guess just like an annual deal, and do they still do this where they take that rubber hammer and they smack your knee with it? Do they still do that? Have you guys experienced this? Does anyone know why people do that? I have no idea still why they do that. I don't have any idea. Check your reflexes. But I'm like, okay, throw something at me and I'll catch it. I mean, try something else. Like, what's this deal? Like, where it's just like, all right, you know, all right, you're alive. You can, you can leave now. So they still do that, right? So when they hit your knee, it's this involuntary knee-jerk, as we get the word knee-jerk reaction, right? That's where that phrase comes from. It's this involuntary movement that just, it just reacts. And this is how simple forgiveness should be. Forgiveness should be the knee-jerk reaction in the church. Like, oh, yeah, like, that's, that's easy. Just a, a simple reaction. It shouldn't be this, you know, well, I'll think about it, or I'll pray about it, or I'll... It should be the default reaction of us in the church. It should be like a gospel reflex that just happens a lot in the body of Christ. You know, it's amazing, I think, um, when I was looking at this text, I was thinking about just how a lot of us, myself included, we lack a gospel resiliency. And so someone wrongs us, and we're just like, yeah, well, I'm, I'm out. I'm cutting off the relationship. And there might be some healthy times to do that. I'm not saying that's ever not a bad thing. But we lack a gospel resiliency. And we lack it, I think, in the church because there's, this love isn't taking place in the church, making us inclined towards forgiving people. So then Peter goes on to say that we need to show hospitality for, to each other as well. Not just you know, say you love, but actually show that you love one another. And I know whenever we hear that word, most of us think of, we think hospitality, we think of what? We think of having people over to our house for dinner. That's what we think of when we think of that word. Hospitality, if we say, oh, that person, they're so hospitable, that means she can cook, or he can cook. I don't want to be like, you know, stereotypical here, because men can cook too. We cook only when there's fire involved, but that's a whole different thing, you know, with grilling and stuff. But you hear that word, and you think of that, that's your image of hospitality. That's it. But this falls way short of what the Bible's talking about when it refers to hospitality. If you and I are going to travel today, we just go online, we book a hotel, then we go to the hotel, and we stay in the hotel, and it's a fairly safe thing to do. But back then... Travel was a dangerous thing. It was always dangerous. You couldn't just go stay in some city. It was like a dangerous thing, especially if you're a Christian. You might get killed for that. So travel was dangerous. So there are Christians that are traveling around and trying to build up the church in various parts 
of the world then. So they're, what Peter is saying is when you see other believers coming into your city, into your midst, and these are strangers, then, then be hospitable to them and take them in. So hospitality was not, you know, cook them a brisket and send them on their way. Hospitality was take them into your home and, and host them for a few days. Strangers. So just let that sink in for a moment. Someone's walking down your street today, and they just knock and say, hey, we're, we're Christians here. We heard that you're Christians as well, and we're just kind of passing through all the hotels. There's no room left in the inn, and so we're coming to your house. Need a place to stay. And you're, you're like, right? You're like, what? These people are weird. I'm not doing that. I'm locking the door, right? That's how we would react. But Peter is saying, no, you show these people hospitality, and um, these are strangers. So what obvious word do we see in the word hospitality? You see it? It's very simple. I know it's early in the morning. Anyone? Hospital. Good job, guys. Man, that took like five minutes. Um, hospital. So when you think of, the, of just a hospital, we don't often associate, we're like, wait, what does cook and brisket have to do with a hospital? That's got nothing to do with each other. So, what is, so here's what I want you to get. Is there urgency in our hospitals? I hope there is. It's often life or death in the hospital. And for some of these Christians, it was a life or death situation. There should be this urgency in hospitality. This guy named Stephen C. Barton, he says, Hospitality was a public duty towards strangers where the honor of the community was at stake and reciprocity, meaning doing the favor back the other way, was likely to be communal rather than just individual. If you've been to other parts of the world, you will probably agree that other places are far more hospitable than here, and I would even say that's even true of the South, because we think of, oh, that, that person there, they had that Southern hospitality, right? We say that. That normally means that someone just says, how are y'all doing? God bless you, you know? God bless her. Who talks that way anyway? I don't talk that way. But we normally think of hospitality being just that, like, oh, Southern hospitality? But I will tell you that even in the South, I will put um, some people that I've seen in the Middle East up against anybody in the South. My experience in the Middle East, I went two years ago to the country of Oman. My friend's a missionary there. And he has a friend who's a Muslim in Oman. And his friend heard that his American friends were coming over to see him. And so his Muslim friend, who doesn't even know who we are, said, I must have them over for lunch and have them over for a big meal. Doesn't even know us. But because he's friends with Brandon, he says, Brandon, your friends are coming from the States. I'm going to have them over. So he had all of us over to his house for lunch, and we never met the guy before. And he had us this big spread. And you sit on the floor, and it was weird. But we ate, and it was really cool to see this guy be so hospitable to us that we didn't even know. A while back, I um, read this book, um, called Lone Survivor, and it was a book. This guy named Marcus Luttrell wrote this book. 
He was a former Navy SEAL. And you may have heard the story. They made a movie out of it. I think Marky Mark was in that movie, I think, Mark Wahlberg. Uh, but Marcus Luttrell was with his um, other Navy SEALs, and they're working on this mission, and everyone in the group got killed except for him. And in Afghanistan, there is a strong tradition of hospitality. So this Af- Afghani person, this man named Mohammed Gulab, that's his name. I got a picture of these two guys here. This guy who's an Afghani, who's not in the war necessarily, but he's an Afghani, and he, he takes in Marcus Dutrell, and he's hiding in his house. Because there's this thing in Afghanistan culture that holds hospitality up so high that if you come across someone whose life's in danger, even if they're the enemy of the people that control your country, you take them in and let them stay with you, even at the risk of your own life, even if it means death. They believe it that strongly in their culture. And he saved his life. And that's why he's alive today, telling the story. In fact, this kind of hospitality is kind of a weird word. Go to my next slide is called Pashtunwali. Can you say that? Pashtunwali is how you're supposed to say it, I think. I'm not sure. But they, they believe in this hospitality so strongly and they're so passionate about it. This is, they will go to the death to defend someone that's, that's, that they're trying to protect. And so I want you to think about how this relates to us now because it does relate to us. When we talk about hospitality in here, I mean, how would you apply all that I just said about hospitality? How would you apply that to um, here on a Sunday or here on a Wednesday? What would that look like if you were to take bigger risks to be hospitable to other people that come into this place? What would that look like? What kind of a culture would that create? in this church, in this group. I mean, these people are risking their lives. And I'm just saying, hey, just risk a conversation. Risk being a little uncomfortable. Risk asking some questions and having an awkward silence and an awkward moment. So what might that look like if we were to put that right here among us? Because hospitality is not just some side thing. It is the practice by which the church stands or falls. So go ahead and do your first uh, three questions at your tables. Okay, so now we're going to skip a section. Uh, and we're going to cut. We're going to go to First Peter chapter five, starting in verse one in a moment. So this this talk really has two sections to it. There is um, the title of the message is servant leadership and sober followership. And yes, I did create a word, but deal with it. Uh, so you just heard about what sober followership looks like. Now we're going to talk about servant leadership and what that looks like and how these kind of relate together. So look at First Peter chapter five verses one to five. Peter says. So I exhort the elders among you 
as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, this, at first, this section, then when we talk about, like, elders and leaders, like, initially, you just go, okay, I'm out. Like, this doesn't apply to me because I'm, I'm not that age, and I'm going to be gone from here in two years anyway, so this is not really applicable to me. But this does apply to you. It applies to everyone here in the room. It applies to me. It applies to our leaders. It applies to you as well. Because the primary picture that the Bible uses um, of leadership in the Bible is, uh, is a, uh, a shepherd. And I know that doesn't translate very well in our culture today. And I fear that the image, the metaphor of shepherd, God uses it all over the Bible. We just gloss over it, and the instant picture in our mind is the picture, the tame and clean picture of Jesus holding a baby lamb. And and we forget that this image of being a shepherd is not some tame and wimpy job. Being a shepherd was not some tame, clean, wimpy job. It never has been and it never will be. Anybody ever, like, flip across the show uh, Dirty Jobs? I forget the guy that hosts that, but um, Mike Rowe. So you've seen that show, and it's always interesting to watch, you know, people cleaning up porta-potties and stuff like that, right? That's an interesting show, right? Uh, but there's a show, Dirty Jobs. Well, to be a shepherd was not just a dirty job. It was a dangerous job. It was a very dangerous job to be a shepherd. Because when you were a shepherd, you were tasked with three things when it came to sheep. You're supposed to lead, protect, and provide for these sheep. Those are the three things you're supposed to do as a shepherd. And these are not tame and wimpy. These, are, these require courage and strength and boldness. And if you remember, go to my next slide. If you remember, these are the three things that men are tasked with when it comes to leading their families. It's the same thing. So you can think, young men, as your future family, as like a little mini um, sort of microcosm of what happens in the greater church as a shepherd, a leader. You're supposed to be the shepherd and the leader and protector and provider of those in your family. And these are not tame and wimpy endeavors. These require courage and strength, but also humility. And there's this idea of servant leadership. And you see it all throughout the Scriptures. So this passage applies to me. It applies to our leaders. It applies to our G-group leaders. It applies to our impact captains. And then here's how it applies to the rest of you. 
Do you want this kind of leadership in your life? Do you want that kind of shepherding in your life? There was a student here a few years back, I'm not going to mention any names, but a student here several years back who was just living in rebellion and just doing some things that were very destructive with his own life, but also with the lives of a few other people. And, and so I called this young man and said, hey, we need to come, we need to meet and talk. And so he and I met up here um, after a Wednesday night up here at the Outback, just me and him up here talking. And I had some really tough things to say. I was trying to be loving, but also tough and just say, man, like, you know, this, I'm not, I don't think he was even a believer at that point. And it wasn't that I was trying to just say, you know, hey, you need to act like a Christian, even though you're not. I wasn't even about that. But I was trying to just shepherd this young man, and it was a painful experience. And he left mad. And his parents got mad. They left the church over it. And I never saw them again. And it was painful. But it was like he wanted none of it. His parents wanted none of it. And so there's a a quote by a guy that's book I'm reading. He says, to put it bluntly, the only Christians who would not want this kind of leadership over them are proud ones who think they don't need anyone's help. And sheep that go it alone tend not to last long, let alone thrive. Do you truly want someone to shepherd you? You notice how whenever we, um, we say things like that, we'll go, like, I need a... I need someone to shepherd me. I need someone to mentor me. And it sounds so like, oh, that sounds fun, right? And then you realize that shepherds would often break the leg of a sheep so they would stay close by the shepherd, right? If they were wandering, remember? You may not know that bit of ancient Middle Eastern tradition. We don't do that here. (laughs) But we will break you, you know? No, but we're trying to be like, lead you and to shepherd you in the way that God wants us to do that. And at times that could, that could be painful. It's been painful for me when I've been on the receiving end of the, some of those things. And I have. But shepherding is not some tame, safe thing. And, um, but as we lead, we're also not to do it harshly. And this, this can also be a temptation. So here's the things that um, Peter says are supposed to happen. He says, here's how shepherds should lead. Not out of obligation but willingly. So for my leaders, for my G-group leaders, and for impact captains, I want you to be willing. Not out of obligation, but willing. That doesn't mean it's never hard. If you have a moment, like a five-minute span of like, I don't want to do this, okay, I'm out. I'm not saying that. But overall, are you willing to lead and not be demanding? Also, for me, whenever someone is clamoring, I've, I've encountered this before with people in the past, where whether it's a student or even like a, a volunteer or someone else, when someone is like, you know, hey, give me the mic. I got a lot of really cool things to say. Give me the mic or give, give me a leadership position or give me influence. And they're like clamoring for leadership and demanding it. That is a big red flag for me. A big red flag for me. And it should be a red flag for you. If you find yourself doing that, it should be a red flag for you. This is leadership is a spiritual responsibility and a weight, but it's good. It's good. So not out of obligation, but willingly. 
not out of greed, but eagerly. So not for yourself, but you're wanting to lead eagerly because you're excited about the mission. And then thirdly, not heavy-handed, but as examples. So you don't just, you know, hey, give me the mic, I'll tell everyone what to do, but it's, it's I want to be an example first and gain the respect of the people I'm leading. And um, I've had a chance to visit one of our equip groups on Wednesday nights is on leadership. And I was in there for just one uh, Wednesday listening to Mr. Jimenez uh, talk about leadership. It was really cool to hear from a man who's got a lot more experience than I have when it comes to leadership. And he's talked about this idea of servant leadership and, and being an example and those kinds of things. But as many of you grow to become leaders, are you someone that others want to follow? Are you followable? I'm going to invent a lot of words this morning. Are you followable? When I talk about leadership with my G group leaders, um, I started a couple years ago letting the rest of the G group leaders decide who's going to be like kind of the captain of each G group. Um, Because you've got to have someone who's kind of, you know, making things happen and all that. And instead of me just assigning it because I thought I knew what I was doing, and realized, I was like, ah, probably wrong decision there. And realized that that was going to happen. And, and uh, so I'm letting the, the students pick. And the reason why I'm doing that is because I want to know, know who they're going to follow. Because I don't always know. And so they get to sort of nominate someone to be a leader. And it's often the person that I was like, well, I don't, okay, yeah, that, that could really work. Because they know who they're going to follow. They know. So are you someone who's um, followable in that way? So once you look back at verse 4 just one more time as we close here. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. So we don't shepherd for this selfish game, but that doesn't mean there isn't a reward. There is a reward, but it's not the one that you might be trying to go after. There's an unfading crown of glory and I think it's so easy for us to get caught up in these fading crowns when it comes to leadership, status, popularity, um, wanting to feel important, wanting to feel needed. And so Peter is, is cautioning us against these kinds of things. So there's two things here, I think, that keep us grounded as a leader. And number one is remembering there is a chief shepherd that we're accountable to. And the second thing is Remembering that these are his sheep, not ours. We don't own anybody. He owns all. And we get to be a part of this process along with him. So that is servant leadership and then sober followership. Go ahead and finish up with your last few questions at your tables.